You're listening to a podcast by BI Norwegian Business School. Financial bubbles, crashes and crises are recurrent phenomena. They happen time and time again and have done so for decades, even centuries. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, between 1970 and 2017 alone, the world experienced more than 150 systemic banking crises. These are major events where national banking systems collapse and fail to perform their functions, often causing deep recessions, unemployment and economic hardship. On these grounds, it is not strange that many attempts have been made to understand why financial crises happen. Still, while numerous books and articles have been written and continue to be written, very little agreement exists among economists or economic historians on the fundamental causes of financial bubbles, crashes and crises. Indeed, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis of 2008, Many, including famously the Queen of England, asked prominent economists why on earth they had not been able to foresee the crisis and take the necessary precautions to prevent it from happening. If they only had had a theory, with capital T, of the financial crisis, the crisis could have been predicted and all the troubles could have been avoided. But, as already indicated, no such capital T theory exists. What do exist, however, is a plethora of different, sometimes complementary, sometimes contradictory theories of financial crisis. These many theories, their presuppositions, their main lines of argument and main conclusions concerning the causes of financial bubbles, crashes and crises, are the subject of the podcast today. My name is Espen Ekberg, I'm a professor of economic history at BI Norwegian Business School and I'm hosting this podcast on financial bubbles, crashes and crises. If you are not new to this podcast, you already know that what we do is that we explore the nature and causes of financial crises as well as their history. Until now, we have approached the subject by investigating the institutions that make up the financial system, the banks, the central bank, the regulatory agencies, as well as the nature of money and money creation. We have sought to explore how these institutions function, their role in the development of financial crises, and in preventing and solving them. In this and the coming show, we are, however, going to talk about theories. We are especially interested in exploring some of the many theories that exist out there on the causes of financial bubbles, crashes and crises. More broadly, we are going to talk about the role and usefulness of such theories in explaining financial crises. And related to that, we are going to talk about the usefulness of historical knowledge and what we might term historical explanations of financial bubbles, crashes and crises. In doing that, we will also discuss the relationship between history and theory. And as always, I'm not going to do this by myself. I'm really lucky. As always, I have a guest. And today my guest is um, Benjamino Caligari. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hi. Hi, Espen. So, Ben, uh, Ben, he is a former PhD student here at the BI Norwegian Business School. And 
actually for many years he was while he was a PhD student he was teaching the course on financial bubbles crashes and crises and he was responsible for the entire course and uh, um, he's still um, uh, sometimes guest lecturing in the course and um, he will do this semester as well and now so now why is Ben here today well Ben is here because well he knows a lot about theories of financial crisis uh, he knows a lot about the history of financial crisis and he's He's a bright and very reflected guy, and he has thought a lot, I think, about the relationship between history <laughs> and theory. So, do you agree, Ben, that you these are the things that you deal with? Well, uh, now I'm blushing, so I'm not <laughs> sure if I agree completely, but uh, uh, I did uh, do mostly all my research on economic theory during my PhD and afterwards, so... I do have some ideas on economic theory, so I hope that I can be of help uh, to you and to the listeners today. Yeah, great. So, but just can we just uh, talk, uh, tell us a little bit about your background? You're actually the first non-Norwegian guest on the show. So ah, that's nice. Great. <laughs> well, so I studied uh, uh, economic sociology, uh, economics and statistics in Italy uh, when I was a university student. Uh, then I worked uh, as a researcher in NGOs for some time on uh, uh, local development. Uh, afterwards, I did uh, this uh, PhD on uh, uh, this school that was mentioned before, perhaps you know it, mm. uh, behind Norwegian Business School on mm. uh, uh, the whole department uh, of uh, innovation and economic organization. And my PhD was mostly on uh, uh, Schumpeterian economic theory. Uh, but in general, uh, uh, monetary and financial aspects of innovation uh, were quite prominent in my work. And afterwards, I have developed further these um, ideas as I started working as a researcher with Christiania University College. Uh, and I've done some teaching uh, on uh, financial crisis, crashes and bubbles, and also on a variety of other uh, theoretical topics. Usually I'm called to do lectures on theory, since, uh, well, uh, theory is a bit of a difficult subject, and I happen to enjoy it, uh, which is weird, but uh, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, so let, maybe we can just start there. You, you say you lecture about theories, uh, but how do you define a theory? What is a theory? Well, uh, if I were to try to give a proper definition, I would say is a description of abstract facts which are derived from reality, but they do not coincide with reality, and they are crafted in order to gain a limited understanding of reality. So theory is something, as I see it, necessary, but it is not sufficient to understand reality. Mm, so... so but why are they useful then? What can we use theories for? Well, essentially, uh, you understand that theory is useful the moment that you try to understand something that really happened. The moment that you face an actual phenomenon and you try to give an explanation of it, then you're faced with the immense complexity of the real. And you figure out quickly that there could be so many explanations for that phenomenon because there are so many things going on at the same time. And therefore, you are forced to pick and choose. You're forced to focus on a specific aspect first and to put the rest in the background. It's something that you have to do because you cannot take into account everything at the same time. And the moment that you do, uh, maybe you don't know it, but uh, you are engaging in theory building. And people have done that before you, and uh, they have uh, focused on certain particular aspects, uh, and they made a complete, although abstract, description of those particular aspects that they deemed particularly relevant. And so this is why you cannot avoid it. Either you can use existing theory, you can benefit from uh, existing knowledge, or you can try to do it everything on your own. People do that, and uh, sometimes these actually lead to the creation of new interesting theories. But more often it leads to uh, rather superficial research or superficial uh, analysis. So theory is something that you cannot really avoid, I'm afraid. 
I think I know the, your answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. So, so should we strive towards one theory of, for example, financial crisis? Mm. Um, I think the uh, the striving, in a sense, is good. In a sense, that we should strive for truth. And therefore, uh, if you think that uh, one theory is particularly useful or particularly more useful than the others, then I think those who believe so, they uh, should strive to convince others. But uh, it is very good that we have many theories and many people striving for different theories. It's a bit like uh, uh, competition in the market. Uh, we uh, like the fact that there is competition in the market when, when actually we find competition in the market. Mm. Uh, and we want the firms try very hard to uh, outcompete each other, but it's best if they don't, right? Because we don't want to end up with a single monopolist. And uh, I don't think it would be very good to end up with a single theory with a capital T. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, don't, I disagree with the uh, British royalty, apparently. <laughs> yeah. What about history then? Yeah. Uh, historians have it uh, very tough and very different than uh, economists, um, uh, I believe, at least. Uh, this is, uh, uh, in my view here is influenced by Schumpeter, who had a very clear um, idea of the relationship between uh, economics and uh, history. And he always argued that uh, history, uh, and in particular reasoned history, which is a historical analysis uh, informed by theory, is essentially the end result and the crown uh, jewel of uh, social science. So uh, that is uh, um, the best that we can do, in a sense, and uh, what we should strive to achieve. And so uh, we develop theory in order to inform uh, historical analysis. So history is, uh, from this perspective, is uh, not even complementary, is uh, sort of the end result that we want to achieve. And uh, for Schumpeter, at least, uh, an historical uh, description, historical analysis of, uh, of a crisis would be always superior to a purely theoretical analysis of a crisis. And I happen to agree. Okay, but then how useful would uh, a historical explanation of a specific, uh, well, financial crisis be for, you know, understanding uh, financial crises that come later or mm. for to, to prevent them from happening? Or? Yeah. Uh, there is a problem in the sense that uh, um, the idiosyncratic characteristics of each crisis uh, can only be thoroughly and usefully explored by historians. And as a result, you gain very good explanations that, however, cannot be directly carried on to others, right? So what you carry on mostly is uh, uh, theory. What you learn from historical analysis is what else is important and how you can actually boost and support this theory in order to uh, gain some form of truth, which theory in itself will not be able to give you. Okay. Well, I think we should, uh, uh, because there's a lot of theories of financial crisis out there, you know, there's numerous, as I said, numerous books uh, every year coming out. Just recently in August, there was a new book on financial bubbles. Um, and uh, But so we have to try and, you know, uh, organize these theories uh, in uh, some some uh, meaningful way. And uh, uh, when I teach the course uh, on financial bubbles, crashes, and crisis, I I, uh, I use this book by this American economist called Gian Bilginsoy. It's called The History of Financial Crisis. Um, and, and what I like about this book it, is that it, it is a book that does not try to, you know, yeah, develop the theory of financial crisis. Instead, it says that there are a number of different theories of financial crisis, and let's try and see uh, how they work uh, when we when we use them to ex try and explain different types of 
financial crises that have been out there in happened in throughout history. So, uh, so this is something that I like, and it it works really well uh, for um, you know presenting. Uh, for students that there are different theories of financial crisis and he has this uh, separate chapter where he presents what he calls the five theories of uh, of uh, financial crisis. I wish there were only five of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he tries then to organize them in five and of course there are never more and and when I te- actually when I teach it I say we we talk about seven actually. <laughs> so so uh, and we will talk about some of them here. That was my plan. And uh, so I prepared you for that and uh, um just um uh so 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 the first theory really that uh Wilkinson presents it's to my to my view it's not really a, a theory of financial crisis because its conclusion is that financial bubbles are you know impossible it's the theories of rational expectation and efficient markets and mm. so so um what it, it's for me it's uh, not being an, uh, a financial economist it's it is uh, for me it's a difficult theory to understand and so it would be nice if you could if it's possible in, in an easy way to just uh, introduce the the listener to the, you know the, what is the basic mm. idea of this theory right uh well as i said uh, every theory uh, focuses on a, a few abstract facts right and the fact on which uh, this theory is based is the fact that despite the tremendous complexity of our socioeconomic system today, uh, financial markets most times do not collapse. Most days we wake up to financial markets being more or less stable and more or less uh, efficient and doing more or less their uh, work of coordinating economic activity on a global scale, which is uh, incredibly difficult work. And so uh, there is clearly some form of stability and there is clearly some form of efficiency at the very least. So the question that is at the basis of this theory is how does the financial markets work? Okay? Mm-hmm. Considering that they do work, they don't work perfectly okay? because they do so from time to time crash down as we know, otherwise we would not do it this course. Mm-hmm. But most of the time they don't. Right? So how come that they don't and how can they function well? So the abstract fact is uh, markets functioning well markets actually delivering on the coordination purpose hmm, that they should have according to economic theory. And so this is why it's a theory that abstract this fact, which is a, an actually observable fact, thankfully, and making it into um, a theory said, let's assume, let's pretend that markets work perfectly well. How would that happen? What would that require? Hmm? Mm-hmm. What would that entail? And it requires an assumption uh, that you mentioned, assumption of uh, rational expectations, hmm? uh, which is a quite strong assumption. And of course, it already tells you something because if it requires a, such a strong assumption, it clearly means that markets uh, are not perfectly eff- efficient. Uh, but that's fine. We are just uh, trying to figure out uh, how they actually work by starting with a simple or easier case to understand in which they work perfectly at all times, right? Uh, and it's not a theory of financial crisis, as you said. It's a theory of financial markets performing well. So crises, from this perspective, only take place because there are some exogenous events, some external events that come over and make a mess of things. Hmm? And markets react perfectly well to these events. And reacting perfectly well might mean that suddenly uh, all the capital that was invested in an entire sector could be gone because they are so very efficient and they immediately realize that that new fact that arrived on the scene means uh, that uh, a certain kind of business is not profitable anymore. And so suddenly, an entire business area might be done. Hmm? Uh, in fact, uh, it's a good thing that markets are not perfectly efficient. 
because these sort of things happen, but thankfully it doesn't happen in a blink of an eye, which is what would happen if this theory was uh, identical with reality. But no one suggests that it is, not even those that adhere to it more strongly would ever suggest that this is the case. If I could just, uh, you, you, because you use this uh, expression, rational expectations, yes. so what, what is it? It's essentially the idea that uh, uh, people form uh, their expectations using all available information mm? Mm. and that everyone use all available information and uh, therefore uh, their expectations are the best that can possibly be. There's also a stochastic element. Mm? So, of course, uh, uh, there is, uh, uh, the expectations are the, the best possible expectation. That does not mean that they are always right, but they are stochastically correct which means there is still an element of uncertainty into it, but is a, a, a rather small one that gets taken away from by endless repetition. So, of course, we know that people don't form their expectations like that, and people are not the same. People uh, think in, a diff in different ways and so on. Uh, that's fine. Hmm? It is an assumption that no one argues reflect, uh, it reflecting the truth. Uh, sometimes you hear this uh, expression, conventional expectations. Yes. So, so what is the difference? Yeah, it's a pretty big difference because with conventional expectations, it's the idea that uh, um, we expectations are not formed by every single individual using all available information, but they are formed at the systemic level, hmm? and uh, they are essentially available to people, and people adhere to the expectations that exist at the systemic level, which are conventions, right? Like uh, the rules uh, that we follow to behave in class, right? We pick a spot and we sit down there and we stay quiet and we take notes, right? When we used to have classes anyway. And that's a convention, right? And expectations could be a bit like that, something that is uh, in the air or in available in the system and yet you can learn and you can follow and you can adapt or you can reject, you can defy. And that's completely different from uh, rational expectations, in which expectations are the product of the individual mind. Mm? Only every individual uh, produces them in the same way. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so sometimes when I when I teach the students about you know the differences between different theories of financial crisis, I I, I have this simple question that we try to ask: so who is to blame for this financial crisis? And so in different theories, you, you blame different people or different institutions. Sorry. So so if you ask the uh, financial economists who, you know, was supportive of this theory of efficient markets and, who, and you asked him or her, who is to blame for financial crisis? What would the answer be? Uh, well, uh, there is a lot of heterogeneity because uh, not even economists who adhere to the same theory have the same ideas here. But uh, there is a tendency from this perspective to say that uh, financial crisis uh, happened because of uh, shocks, uh, exogenous negative shocks that take place on productivity, which means on, uh, uh, let's say, uh, actual production markets. And so you might say that uh, it's uh, because of this shock. Then, of course, I don't know which shock they would use because... Uh, it depends very much on which uh, uh, crisis we're talking about. Uh, it changes a lot depending on the crisis because it can hit a particular sector, it can be general, uh, it can be related to a specific technology, a specific type of organization and so on. But they would probably look at uh, uh, the market for real products and services. So so to say it really simple, if they were to explain a financial crisis, they would look outside the financial system. Yeah, because the financial system uh, is perfectly efficient, so you need to look outside. But as I said, most people know that using this theory, the good ones anyway, they know that this theory uh, does not reflect reality. Yeah. So they can entertain yeah. a whole host of other ideas. Huh? Yeah. So so yeah, sure. So um, 
So this is the first theory really that I wanted to talk about, and uh, and uh, and then we can move on to it because uh, Bilgensoy has this second theory. It talks about uh, theories of market failure. Right. So what is that? How does that differ from? Uh, it's uh, it's actually complementary to the first, I would say, because uh, the first is saying, okay, let's uh, try to figure out uh, how markets work because most of the time they do, uh, yeah, and sometimes they don't. Right. So uh, taking instead here as a starting fact, the fact that sometimes they don't, let's try to figure out what is it that makes markets stumble. Mm? And so to identify a number of events, conditions, configurations, processes that make markets stumble along the way. So there is no single theory of market failures, but there are a number of hypotheses uh, about markets failing and uh, identifying different reasons on why they can fail and what it means that they fail and how this can be fixed. Usually this perspective uh, uh, essentially supports the idea that yes, markets uh, uh, work fine most of the time, but under some conditions they don't. And these conditions need to be one, identified, and two, if possible, fixed. So it's a more interventionist uh, view. And of course, uh, it supports a different uh, view of financial crisis as well, because uh, uh, it means that actually uh, markets can fail and financial markets can fail. And therefore, we don't always have to look outside financial markets. Perhaps there are some conditions that make the financial markets fail and there you have the crisis. Yeah, that was really my follow up, because going back to this, who is to blame for the financial crisis here? Then what you would say is there would be some different types of failures within the financial well, markets? Well, uh, often um, those who adhere to these sort of theories, uh, they tend to blame those that believe blindly in the markets, right? Because they say, no, we know that there are a host of conditions under which markets do not work, and we know that many of these conditions are quite realistic. So if we follow this, then we should not have a, a laissez-faire, right? Because we have these conditions and we know and we work very hard to identify these conditions in order and to identify solutions to them. So it's, uh, it's clearly based on an interventionist perspective or at least a regulatory perspective. Most of the economists adhering to this view are for free markets, but they are for free regulated markets. Yeah, okay. So, but, um, so what kind of failures can we talk about? So one of the things we hear a lot about is the asymmetric information, for example. Yeah. And uh, as we said, uh, uh, if we have rational expectations and the idea that uh, people use all available information, then the problem is, uh, okay, and what about the information that is not available? What happens then? And uh, of course, what happens is that you have insider trading and you have a number of problems there. And is insider trading a fact of life? Yes, it is. It very much is. We have so many people being condemned for insider trading every year. So it's very difficult to deny. And the idea is how much does that matter? Okay. And there is a lot of research on this to see, does it really matter as much uh, or maybe this is uh, something that actually fixes itself and so on. But it's certainly a fact that once it's introduced, makes everything a lot more difficult. Hmm? But there are many other uh, causes of market failure and, uh, for, of course, uh, the introduction of innovation as an endogenous process also uh, creates problems for the markets because markets uh, are notoriously bad to uh, deal with innovation. And, in fact, we know that lots of financial crises have happened because of uh, bubbles that uh, have often been related to uh, innovations, financial innovations, but also technological innovations, like the bubble, the IT bubble that we had in the 2000s. And right now we are enjoying a very strong ride on uh, this um, uh, tech bubble that is uh, happening and that uh, now is shaking a little bit. And there are lots of reasons for that. Most of the reasons are actually financial, not technological. But still, it shows that uh, this is uh, problematic for markets to deal with effectively. 
Yeah, okay. I think we have now now talked about two different uh, theories. And um, we move on to the third, uh, which is a little bit different. Uh, it's, um, um, uh, well, it has many names, but we can call behavioral economics or... Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and and Birkenstein mentions this as one of you know one type of uh, theory of financial crisis. Mm. And um, what is it about? Yeah, um, that's complicated because I, I, I have uh, opinions about that, but I will try to be <laughs> as neutral as possible. So um, it starts from uh, uh, the observation that is absolutely correct uh, that people actually do not behave according to uh, the behavior assumptions that are most commonly used in economics even those assumptions that are more uh, are less heroic than others so those assumptions that are a little bit more reasonable they are still far off the mark okay so people are faced with tremendous complexity and lots of decisions and they use a number of heuristic strategies and so on to actually decide how to behave and people care about lots of different things that uh, they are not supposed to care according to uh, some assumptions in uh, economic theory such as justice for example and uh, this informs their behavior uh, so, okay, that, that is uh, definitely an observation that is correct. And the problem is that when you try to build a, a theory on top of that, they, and the big ambition is uh, let's try to figure out exactly how people behave in reality and let's try to extract a rule that is, uh, um, let's say, realistic enough while still covering uh, uh, a large amount of these phenomena that we see. And on the basis of this rule, let's refound microeconomics at least, perhaps even macroeconomics. Okay, so let's try to find a better, a better behavioral assumptions to plug in our economic theories. So it's a, uh, it's uh, I think uh, an ambitious and uh, uh, potentially very beneficial uh, endeavor. And of course, it has been applied to finance too, because the idea is how do people invest? How do people choose how to invest? Turns out that they are not necessarily very rational in doing so. But of course, no one expected them to be, but uh, now we're figuring it out exactly through experiments, observations, and a number of other uh, very uh, smart research uh, initiatives, how and what actually affects people's behavior in investment. And okay, so how does this reflect on financial crisis? Because it's a behavioral finance is just part of behavioral economics, which is a huge school fund. So uh, the idea is that financial crises uh, here are triggered by the fact that there are some events that affect many people at the same time and that lead people to be more irrational than usual. Or let's say uh, that lead their behavior, their rational behavior, to be more destructive or inconsistent than usual. And when that happens, uh, eventually uh, problems will arise because uh, people behaving in an irrational and destructive way eventually will have consequences, and these consequences may be a financial crisis. Hmm? So that's a very different uh, focus, because here the focus is not on markets, not exactly. Uh, the focus is on investors, on uh, people, on individuals. And therefore also the reason who is to blame becomes uh, gets a different answer. Yeah, so the, who's to blame? People being irrational, which is, uh, um, in a sense, is a good answer because it's an answer that most people would accept because we all agree that people are not entirely rational. We can find uh, many cases of uh, instances of people behaving really irrationally around a crisis, before a crisis, after a crisis, right? And so it's, uh, it's an answer that most people would believe. Hmm? Is it a good answer, though? Uh, I don't know. It's not good in the sense that it doesn't allow us to do anything about it. Because if we say, well, people's minds work like that, and sometimes people go a little bit crazy, and then bad stuff happens, 
what what are we supposed to do? Could we not regulate ourselves uh, away from this problem? We cannot regulate ourselves because uh, in this case it's uh, people misbehaving as well. So people going uh, around the rules. So we should drop uh, psychologists on Wall Street when times are tough. But that's not really doable. Is it? No, and they do it in unpredictable ways. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's difficult to know when to paradrop the psychologists. Mm-hmm. So what would the behavioral uh, economists or be- say to you know how should we avoid financial uh, crisis? Well. Um, they would probably well mm, avoid fin- avoiding financial crisis altogether is probably impossible from this perspective we can avoid being swept in financial crisis so the individual can save itself hmm? and there are a number of signs uh, that uh, these people talk about when uh, that you need to watch out for and then save yourself right because the the crowd went into madness mode and now you have to save yourself but how uh, and then maybe this uh, uh, these uh, signals can be recognized by uh, monetary and fiscal authorities as well and maybe they can do something about it uh, in advance but is that going to be enough hmm. it's tough yeah okay thanks now we um this goes well we have talked about three different theories nice. already and so um, um There's a fourth one, uh, or it, in the book, it's actually the fifth one, uh, uh, because we we jumped past one theory that we will not talk about here, because we will have a separate show for <laughs> for the theories coming from Austrian economics and monetarism. Um, uh, you will hear that um, uh, in the next show. But uh, the final theory that Bilgensoy uh, uh, talks about uh, is related to certain specific people actually unlike the other ones and it's uh, um, he mentions Walter Begat the old uh, uh, economist editor and uh, writer from the 19th century and uh, we're not going to talk so much about him but the, the two people he mentions is um, Kindleberger and Hyman Minsky and actually we will have a separate show on Minsky as well so we will stick mostly to Kindleberger right. and Kindleberger's theory of financial crisis Uh, of course, it was inspired a lot by Minsky. We talk a little bit about that, but um, um, who was Kindleberger, and yeah. why? How and why did he develop a theory of financial crisis? Well, Kindleberger was a, a great American economist who worked mostly on international economics, and uh, is famous for a number of contributions there. Uh, but he worked a lot also on the monetary and financial aspects of uh, uh, international economics. And, of course, uh, you find lots and lots of crises uh, when you study these sort of matters. So uh, he ended up accumulating a lot of uh, knowledge, uh, historical knowledge and economic knowledge about crises. And then eventually he adhered to uh, a partially Minsky-inspired view. Uh, he didn't adhere to uh, Minsky's original theory. But he took that into consideration when he developed his own views. And then towards the uh, later stages uh, of his career, uh, he put all this knowledge together into uh, something that uh, is sometimes called uh, the Minsky-Kinderberger theory, hmm? which is Kinderberger theory. Hmm? Mm. But it is uh, a bit influenced by Minsky, although it is still different. Hmm? And uh, it's a theory that mixes up several aspects of what we have discussed so far. Um, there is also a behavioral aspect because uh, the beginning of the theory is... Actually, the theory is not exactly a theory of financial crisis. It's a theory of the financial cycle. 
or the business cycle, if you prefer, uh, because it begins with the boom. It begins with the good times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he says that the good times come because of displacement, which means that there is some exogenous shock of certain kind that makes the good times come in. And he doesn't worry too much. He doesn't say too much about what brings the good times because he's still trying to create a theory mostly focused on the financial crisis. But he says that there is some exogenous shock that brings in the good times. And everything is good for a time because uh, investments are up, unemployment is down, income is going up, and people are saving and gaining more and more money. So that's good. Uh, but then uh, this situation, which is uh, very desirable, uh, can endogenously become undesirable because uh, people might start to differentiate themselves in their career path and their, uh, let's say, wealth gaining path. So your neighbor might become rich and you may not. You may be fine. You might have a good job and you are fine with that, but your neighbor is buying that third car, you know, and mm -hmm. you're not. And that's supposed to put pressure on people in the sense that uh, um, since uh, the fruits of economic development are never going to be distributed equally in an individualist society, those who uh, are left behind and not necessarily for good reasons, not necessarily because of their fault, but simply because of a number of happenstances and bad luck that can happen, simply because a particular sector might be uh, growing more than another and you happen to have start working in that other sector and you made your career there. And it's not your fault that your sector is not really the one uh, growing so fast, right? And you cannot really switch. I mean, you could, but you would start at the lower rung, and so you wouldn't catch up with your lucky neighbor anyway. So um, what people do is that then uh, they start to be more reckless in their investments, in how they manage their savings, because they say, okay, I'm not making as much money as others, but I can make money in other ways. I can make money on the financial markets. I can make money on the stock markets. And uh, maybe when I go and talk to my bank or to my broker, I tell them that I want a more aggressive strategy because I want more returns, you see. And uh, if people start doing that, then things might become less and less sustainable because uh, risks start becoming cheap. More and more people are willing to buy risk. And so, of course, uh, uh, the price of risk is going down. So you have to buy even more risk in order to get the returns that you're looking for. And uh, people might also borrow in order to invest more, because if you uh, leverage up, you can get even more returns from the financial market, so you can really keep up with your neighbor. But of course, so that's uh, uh, creating a frail situation, because if uh, the bad times arrive, they're going to be really bad for you. And so eventually this uh, race creates a bubble on top of the boom. So the good conditions are there, but the bubble makes the good conditions sustainable. And eventually uh, the bubble explodes. And then you see a lot of uh, economic pain all over the place. And yes, maybe at that point your neighbor might lose his job. So haha, but uh, that's not really compensation because you are probably the one losing much more than your, your own neighbor. So uh, is, there is this uh, Kinebergen saying that the bad sign is when uh, the taxi driver is giving you uh, tips on how to invest in Wall Street. That's uh, supposed to be a bad sign. Then there's too many people too investing many in... People, and too many people being very optimistic on mm. investing in Wall Street. Yeah, but um, so that you, you use this expression displacement. Mm. Uh, what, what kind of things can be a displacement? That's the thing. Uh, uh, Kinderberger is not exactly uh, keen on giving very many details there because his theory is not a theory of, uh, uh, let's say, of growth. 
in itself. So it just uh, takes um, a very standard perspective saying that we have a long-term uh, growth trend, which is given uh, by exogenously, mostly uh, by uh, conditions uh, on uh, natural conditions, market conditions, institutional conditions, and so on. And then there could be some positive news. For example, uh, Norway can find some oil. And then you have a displacement from uh, the trajectory that uh, uh, economic development was taking place in Norway because of these long, uh, long-term factors. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have another trajectory, which is uh, much better for Norway because you get a lot more wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's an, an, an example of displacement. But you can have other things. For example, you can, uh, you can be Ireland and then you can hit on the idea that uh, letting uh, American companies uh, cheat on their taxation is uh, great. It might be great for you in the short term. And so you decide to make that kind of reform and then uh, uh, the GDP growth rate of uh, Ireland really pick up, right? Yeah, so so, so um, different types of external different types, f- yeah. effects uh, that um, uh, puts this uh, economy uh, on a booming yeah. path. It doesn't really consider endogenous uh, uh, processes that might lead to the same results, but that's fine. You mentioned this in the beginning, but this seemed to me like a mix of different theories. So this exogenous thing is, you, you know, it's a little bit, uh, although it explains the the, the crisis in, in uh, rational uh, expectation theory, it's, it's, it's exogenous. There's some irrationality here. There is. As well. In uh, fact, the phases are named after emotions that you feel during it. Yeah, yeah, so there is yeah. a euphoria that is associated with the boom, right? Yeah. Because yeah, Kindleberger he has these these uh, stages. Uh, yep. Yeah. So he talks about displacement, and he talks about you talked about them as well. But the boom, and then I think he calls it mania. Yeah. And then you have the bubble, uh, and you have uh, what he calls uh, uh, what is it again? Uh, when the bubble, uh, um, when it uh, when it poops, the bubble yeah. poops. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, then you have the crisis. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about his inspiration from Minsky. Uh, uh, and could you t- just talk a little bit more about that? Um, because we are later going to talk about Minsky's theory, yeah. but then you can just mention it briefly and then... Well, uh, Minsky, um, for a time, was considered... Uh, the only one offering um, endogenous theory of financial crisis. And for a long time, it, it kind of was, in the sense that it, it was the economist alive doing an endogenous uh, theory of financial crisis, meaning that financial crises uh, do not come from the outside, but they come natural or, for, or because of some specific bad conditions that happen to come into place. But they are a natural uh, outcome of financial markets. So left to their own, with no bad conditions coming into place and no exogenous shocks, financial markets are eventually going to create crisis. That was uh, the Minsky's perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, can we trace a little bit of that in Kinderberger? Yes, because even if Kinderberger starts with an exogenous shock, which Minsky does not have, then the process that he describes, it's very much an endogenous process. Because once the shock is in place, things uh, the ball starts rolling and it becomes... Uh, worse and worse, right? And financial markets uh, uh, do not stop it in any way. In fact, the financial markets uh, accommodate this change in behavior, even if it's going to eventually result in their disorganization and crash. Mm. So it's similar. But um, it sounds a little bit more like, in a way, a more complex theory, more realistic maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, But anyway, is it possible to, to again answer this question that we have, who is to blame? 
<laughs> according to Kindleberger. According to Kindleberger. Well, um, interestingly, and that does not follow directly from what you read, but uh, uh, Kindleberger tend to blame in the book that is most famous, most, uh, most commonly associated with this theory, uh, the government. Oh, really? Yeah, How? because he blames the government for not acting... Uh, uh, quickly and efficiently enough afterwards. So his perspective is uh, that crises are going to happen because, uh, and here he shares the sort of behavior perspective because if crises come because people behave irrationally, then crises are probably going to happen. But his point is, crises are similar mm, to each other. So yes, there are always different elements, but they're not so different. So since we have so much experience, we should be able to recognize them. And so if we know them and we recognize them, then we should be able to do something about it. And the government, uh, uh, governments uh, therefore do not do enough since uh, we know enough about them to uh, acknowledge them and to react. So governments are not to be blamed because uh, financial crises take place, but according to Kinderberg at least, uh, they are to be blamed because they don't react effectively enough afterwards. Mm-hmm. So that's what Kinderberg says. Okay. Well, thank you, Ben. Now we have been... I think quite efficient, I think. We have been through four different theories of financial crisis. Uh, and as I said, we will have a new show talking about uh, one specific theory, the Austrian theory, and also about monetarism. We didn't talk about it here. Um, but I think I'm happy now. I think I've, we've learned a lot about different theories and also about the role of theory. Um, so thank you, Ben, for coming. And um, we will be back as well uh, later. We will talk about one uh, very big financial crisis, oh, yeah. the Great Recession of 2008. And then maybe we will try to use some of these theories and uh, talking about this crisis. And maybe we'll to see how they perform in the field. Yeah, good. Thank you. This is a BI production. Listen to more podcasts. Go to bi.no slash podcasts.